Word that as this word goes forth, I pray that you would help us have good fertile soil of hearts and minds. Lord, that you would anoint right now people's eyes to be able to see and ears to hear, that they can see and hear in the Spirit what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen? They can see and hear, and they can perceive what the Holy Spirit is speaking to the church. And Lord, that this will go into our lives as living seeds of truth that will be watered tonight by the Spirit of God. And those, those seeds of truth will take root in us and begin to grow in our lives and develop and bear fruit. Eternal fruit that remains until Jesus comes. That we will be eternally different. And Lord, I ask you by the Spirit of God that you would help us to get totally locked in and focused to where we're not distracted, but we really can lock in and give you our best ear and our full attention and grasp everything out of this that needs to be. We thank you for it. We bless you. In Jesus' name we pray and believe it to be done. Amen. All right, I'm going to be speaking on Nazarites. You guys are going to like this sermon. Some of you have felt that God is calling you to a place spiritually that maybe others have not gone. You know, sometimes I, I wonder, but I, I, at the same time I understand the aspect that God has maybe done something in my life and I've experienced something in, in your life too that maybe somebody else just hasn't experienced, you know? And sometimes I wonder, I think, well, why, why is it that I feel this way? Why is it that, and then someone else seems to not care as much about certain issues? But you've got to understand, God, once He touches your life, you'll never be the same. And you've got you to understand that being really patient with other people, because maybe they haven't had the experiences that you've had. Lamentations 4.7 says, Her consecrated ones... The Nazarites were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy, healthy, glowing, and fresh in body than rubies and sapphire in appearance. Isn't that an amazing passage right there? All right, I'm going to explain what a Nazarite is as I go. And I think that this is going to help you. I believe this will encourage you. And it will definitely take you deeper. How many want to go deeper? Yeah. All right. And then we're going to pray for everybody. And God's, God's powerfully going to touch everybody here. I feel it. So God has began a move in our nation. I've been talking about this. Really, this is going to be a continuation of the sermon series I did on the spirit of whoredoms. And this is kind of going to pick up with that. So if you haven't heard that, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. But I'm going to start with the Nazarite. The next week, I'm going to deal with eight things that God has put in the scriptures that can cause you to see major, huge breakthrough in your life. How many of you guys have ever been in a situation where you really needed a breakthrough? Okay. We all have. And there's different principles in the scriptures that when you apply those principles, you're going to see things happen. I'm really going to, next week I feel will be one of the more life-changing sermons that I've probably ever preached in this ministry. And if you get it in your heart, and I'm actually wanting you to take the notes and keep them in your Bible to refer back to, because I feel like it will change your life. And this is going to lead up to that, okay? So God has begun moving in our nation. There's been prophecies of a great awakening. It has begun. It's already in its infancy stage, and it has begun. In 1996, Promise Keepers placed one million men on the mall in D.C. to pray. You guys remember that? The Promise Keeper movement. This was the beginning of something in our nation. And I'm going to read to you Malachi 4. 
Let me go ahead and read that, and then I'll explain. In Malachi 4, starting with verse 5, says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Now let me go back to this now. It says here, I wrote this down. In 1996, Promise Keepers placed one million men on the mall to begin to pray. And it was the beginning of the hearts of the fathers being turned to the sons. And Lou Engle was used by God to bring 400,000 young people together in prayer and fasting on the mall in D.C., in September of 2000. This was the beginning of the son's hearts being turned to the father's. Because the call movement, I know there's adults there too, I should say, but the call, you see a lot of young people that are fasting and praying and gathering. And what God is doing in America, He is beginning to heal our land by touching the hearts of the fathers. They're returning back to the children and children to the fathers. Now just follow me because I'm going somewhere tonight. Everybody say Pastor Scott's going somewhere. I am. Just work with me, all right? All right, I'm going to talk about the spirit of Elijah for a minute. In Revelation, it talked about the seven spirits of God. But how many knows that God doesn't have seven different Holy Spirits? He has one Holy Spirit. But whenever the Holy Spirit comes in His sevenfold manifestation, He comes in His fullness, He's coming as the spirit of Elijah. The spirit of Elijah, you have to understand this manifestation of the Holy Spirit to understand the Nazarite because it goes together. The Spirit of Elijah, is it talks about in Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom, revelation, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Those are the sevenfold attributes. You see, the lampstand represents the Holy Spirit in the tabernacle. And it had seven branches. When the Holy Spirit comes in His fullness, He's coming as this sevenfold manifestation, and He's coming as the Spirit of Elijah. Now, when you look at the Spirit of Elijah, what you see, you see the hearts of the fathers turning to the sons, sons to the fathers, and you see a generational healing, you see relationship healings. But when you're dealing with the nemesis of Elijah, you have the Jezebel spirit, which rips those relationships apart. The spirit of Elijah, when the Holy Spirit comes in that way, you can call this, and I want you to catch what I'm saying, you can call this manifestation of the Holy Spirit the spirit of revival, because that would be a very accurate phrase to use. You could say it's, it's the spirit of prophecy. And with the spirit of Elijah, you connect fire with Elijah's ministry. Amen? And so you're seeing these different attributes of the Holy Spirit. When He comes as the Spirit of Elijah, you're seeing a real strong prophetic dimension, and you're seeing revival, and you're seeing repentance of sin. Look at the life of Elijah. He came out of nowhere. When his time was up, God took him in a chariot. I mean, he was, his, he was Israel's probably Israel's most powerful prophet. But in that, you've got to understand that his ministry, that Spirit of Elijah that was with him, that was upon him, what, what happened? Great revival. Great repentance. In Amos chapter 2, 
Verse 11, it says, Then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, O sons of Israel, declares the Lord? God is moving in the way of the spirit of Elijah. Years ago, when Sandy and I really first started the ministry, somebody that was a spiritual father to Sandy and to myself came and spoke. And it was probably one of the most significant services we've ever had. When he came, the Lord spoke to me and said, Your spiritual father's coming. And when the two of you come together, the Lord said, I'm going to release the spirit of Elijah and it will not stop burning. There's something about the generations coming together. The apostolic ministry is very fathering. And that it reproduces in other people what God has put in them. The apostolic ministry is really all about fathering because it's birthing something out of nothing. And it's reproducing in people what God has deposited in that apostle. As I talk about the Nazarite, I want to make sure that I deal with spiritual pride. Because this right here is probably the greatest enemy to the Nazarite. And you guys, when I'm done, you're going to know what a Nazarite is and, and probably God's going to birth something in you. But let me warn you about spiritual pride. How many knows no man can come into the Father except the Spirit drawing? So just because you have a rich, powerful prayer life and you're going after God, that is only God actually drawing you. Are you hearing me? There's, Paul said, there's nothing good in me except Christ. And there has to be a place that we come to where we understand that whatever God is doing in us, it is Him doing it. It is His grace. I want everybody, please hear me tonight. Please get this in your spirit. Let this become something that really gets down in you tonight. It is God's grace in you whenever He's drawing you unto Himself. And God starts pouring into you revelation. That's God's grace. It's not something that you could do even if you wanted to. It has to be the Holy Spirit putting it in you. And even people that are called into the ministry. God may put a gifting in you of prophecy. And then you prophesy. And how easy it is to get lifted up and think, you know, look what I just did. But in reality, it's not you. It's only the gifting that's within you. And it's only the grace of God that He's using us. Even somebody like a pastor. If God, God had to put that gift and that office in that person, then through that office they can pastor. So understand that whatever God does in you, it is only by His grace and mercy. And if you do get lifted up with spiritual pride, God will pull His hand off and He'll let you go through a time of humbling and you will come out humble. But it will not be a fun thing to go through. And some of the very things that you took pride in will be void for a while. They'll be absent because God will lift His presence. So God has to pursue you. You know, I used to wonder, why is it that there's such a hunger in some people? How many knows that we need to be asking for hunger? It's not something that is necessarily just going to fall out of the sky and just whack you upside the head one day 
that you're just walking down the road and all of a sudden you're just spiritually hungry today. It just came out of nowhere. God's got to start something in you. It's a pursuit. God pursues us first, really. And then, as He puts that in us, we begin to pursue Him. Now, I remember when it began in my life was at the Brownsville Revival. 1996, I went. And as I was there, somebody prayed for me. And I was thrown back in the air, landed on my back, baptized in fire. And God began something in me of a pursuit and a hunger. There was a fire that was lit inside. But only God can do that. And so we can't glory in the fire that God put in us and think it's of us because it's only it's God that lit that fire. So when we really understand that, then I can begin to teach on the Nazarite. Okay? So what is a Nazarite? In the Bible, a Nazarite comes from the Hebrew word Nazir, and it means to be separated or consecrated ones. You read about it in Numbers 6, 1 through 21. Understand, this is an Old Testament principle, but everything in the Old Testament is a shadow and type of what's to come in the New. So everything that was seen in the Old Testament, it, you can see it now in the New Testament in a spiritual sense. For example, the tabernacle was a physical thing on the earth the size of a football field and it was there but now we are the spiritual tabernacle temple of the holy spirit so everything in the old testament it carries over in a spiritual sense and can, can be applied to our lives for example under old testament law the jewish people could not eat unclean animals now you can eat a pig okay now it's all right but I'm going to tell you, what is. how do you take that in the Old Testament and bring it into the New Testament? Because now, spiritually, we're not supposed to be eating spiritual garbage. Amen? What goes in your eyes, what goes in your ears, what you allow in you. So the Nazarite in the Old Testament, I'm going to read to you what it was, and I'm going to show you how it carries over into the New Testament. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, This is number 6, 1-21. through 21. When a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made by wine or strong drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat any fresh or dried grapes. So interesting that in the Nazarite vow, they had to stay away from anything from the fruit of the vine, the grape, the raisin, the wine, anything like that. That's number one. Secondly, it says all the days of his separation, so the time period of the vow, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grape. And then he goes on, sorry, number two, it says all the days of his separation, no razor will pass over his head. So he's not to cut his hair. Now get this, because this is something that is really going to change your life, I'm telling you. So number one, they had to abstain from anything that had to do with the grape. Number two, they had to abstain from cutting their hair. And then number three, it says, All the days of his separation to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead person, a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean even for his father or his mother or his brother. So even if a relative died, he could not touch that body to bury it. He had to have it done. 
but he himself could not touch a dead body. I, you can read the rest of that on your own. But So what the Nazarite was, was a, a time that somebody would take a vow to God, and they would separate themselves and consecrate themselves as holy unto the Lord for a period of time. This could be a day, this could be a month, and, the, and it could be a lifetime. And in this special vow, as they separated themselves unto God, it was a very powerful thing. And at the end of the vow, let me go ahead and read this, starting with verse 8. It says, All the days of his separation, he is holy unto the Lord. It says on the day, I'm sorry, let me skip down to verse 11. When this is over, whenever his vow's over, he is to take, I'll just go ahead and tell you about it, he's to cut his hair and take that hair that grew to the priest and they would burn it. So this was something that a person would do to separate themselves as holy to God. Now in a spiritual sense, I'm going to come back to this here in a moment. But God is calling some people to go deeper. And what I mean by that is, this is the Old Testament picture and type, but I'm taking it now into the new. God has called some people to be consecrated unto Him and separated unto Him in a special way. Do you hear what I'm saying? It was a great prophet that God had called and he was mightily used of God. And when he was a child, before he knew the Lord, when he was a little child, he was walking through the woods by himself and he had a little bucket of water with him. And the wind was whipping around in a tree and it caught his attention. And as he was looking at the tree, and he was one, he was kind of like Moses' burning bush. Here he is looking at the tree and it's whipping around. And a voice spoke to him as the Lord speaking to him and told him, he said, do not drink, do not smoke, do not defile your body in any way. Because when you're older, I have a work for you to do. Now, it's, he was a little kid, it scared him. So he dropped the bucket, he ran home and hid under his bed. But I'm going to tell you, as he got older, God called him and God anointed him in a mighty way. And that man was mightily used of God. So there are some people that God is calling to go deeper. You know, I just saw Steve Hill preaching, you know, last night. So just looking at his life. You know, Steve came out of hardcore drug abuse. You know, just lived a party life, was a heathen. And when he came to know the Lord, God saved him, washed him in the blood. He was born again. He was a new, new creature. But he didn't just stay there. He really went after God. You see what I'm saying? He really went after God. And he consecrated his life unto God as holy. He separated himself. And because of his consecration, when it came time for somebody to be used in the Brownsville Revival, God smiled favorably upon Steve's life and used him. There are some of you within the sound of my voice that you feel in your heart that God's trying to take you deeper. And you feel like that maybe there's other Christians you know, they go to other churches and, and they're out there or whatever. And 
And you know in their life, you look at their life and you think, man, they're, you know, they're compromising and things like that. But you feel in yourself, God's wanting to take me deeper. And there's something different God's doing in me. I can't do the things they're doing. There were three Nazarites in the Bible. The first one I'm going to talk about is Samuel. The prophet Samuel, his mama was there in the temple praying. Eli thought she was drunk, remember the story, and here she was mumbling to herself. And she said this, she said, Lord, if you'll give me a son. She said, no razor will touch his head. And I'll give him back to you. She was basically telling the Lord, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you all the days of his life and he'll be a Nazarite. No razor will touch his head. And God heard her prayer and he gave her Samuel. When Samuel was a little boy, she took Samuel. You know, back then they sewed the clothes for the kids. She made him clothes and all that. And she brought him to Eli, who was the judge of Israel at that time. And she said, I'm giving my son to you that you can train him in the ways of God. And Eli taught Samuel all about the things of God. Mm-hmm. One of the things that Eli did is he took little Samuel at night you know, and walked him in. And he would go into the area where the Ark of the Covenant was. I believe This happened in the Bible, you can read. And would take him in there and lay him down and he would sleep near the Ark. Because Eli knew if he could get him into God's presence, that God would change him. And one night while Samuel was sleeping near the ark, God did speak to him. Samuel was probably the most beloved prophet in Israel. He was a, a mighty man of God. And he was Israel's last judge and first prophet. Well, I guess Moses and others were prophets too. But he was really the first that walked through Israel like that, used in that way. And as he went through there, it was Israel's final judge. And he was the one that God used to anoint King Saul. He was the one used to anoint King David. And he was, he was a powerful man of God, but he was a Nazarite. He was set apart from birth. He was consecrated. Amen? Another person that was a Nazarite... You know, what sticks out to me about Samuel was the consecrated. What sticks out to me about John the Baptist was how he abstained. Let me explain. John the Baptist was a Nazarite. In Luke 1, 15-17, it says this, The angel spoke to Zechariah, his father, and said, For he, John the Baptist, will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. There's something about... I heard Rodney Howard Brown saying that that people that have a drinking problem have a hard time being filled with the Spirit. It's interesting that it says it right here. It says that he will not drink and he will be filled with the Spirit. You remember that the Apostle Paul said this. He said, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then it says, he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him, speaking of Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make a people ready, prepared for the Lord. What a high calling on John. That he was going to have the spirit of Elijah upon him. 
Now, I don't know if there's any credibility to this or not, but, you know, Zechariah's father was, was in the line of Aaron, and so was his mother. I'm sorry, John's father, Zechariah, was in the line of Aaron. So they were descendants of Aaron, and Zechariah would go into the temple and burn incense and, and worship. And I heard some scholars say that the actual, what John was wearing, they said that Zechariah got that from the temple, and it used to be what Elijah wore. I don't know if that's true or not, but I've heard several people say that. But nonetheless, whether it was a physical garment that went back to Elijah or not, the same spirit of Elijah that was on the prophet Elijah was on John. And he was a Nazarite. And what was it? He was used to help prepare for the coming of the Lord. You see, what you got to understand when it said earlier, it said that the, the Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. The great coming of the Lord was Christ's first coming. The terrible coming is his second. The spirit of Elijah came upon John to prepare for Christ's first coming. The spirit of Elijah is coming upon the bride of Christ to prepare for his second coming. And God is using us to be a forerunner. And it is the message of repentance of sin preparing people for the coming of the Lord. John the Baptist preached against sin. And people came by the thousands. And they would be baptized and they would be repenting of their sin. And it was preparing for the Lord's coming. And God is using us in these last days and these revivals to preach against sin. And it's calling in the harvest. Preparing for Christ's second coming. But John, what sticks out to me is how he abstained. You know, he could have had whatever he wanted, but he lived a life that was so consecrated unto God, he went out in the wilderness and lived there when he could have lived in the house. Do you see what I'm saying? He ate the locusts and wild honey, but he could have eaten things that were permissible under Jewish law. What he wore could not have been comfortable, but he could have wore something comfortable that was permitted under Jewish law. But it seemed like his life as a Nazarite was that he abstained from things that were permissible. Are you hearing me? This is all going to make sense here in a moment. The other Nazarite in the Bible is Samson. If you read the story of Samson, an angel of the Lord appeared to his parents and said, you're going to have a son. He's going to be a deliverer of Israel. And he was going to be a Nazarite. No razor was going to touch his head. See, the Jewish people knew this. And so whenever somebody said, no, no razor is going to touch their head, they knew that's a Nazarite. And they knew that Samson was supposed to be a Nazarite from birth and he was going to be a deliverer of Israel. Let me tell you about Samson. Samson was a normal guy. Some of you guys think probably one of two things. You think that he probably looked like Hercules, don't you? He didn't. He was a normal guy, you know, probably six foot and thin. He was not muscular. The second thing some people think, like the Incredible Hulk, he would hulk out, you know, when it was time to... <laughs> that didn't happen. What happened was that the Spirit of God would come upon him, and even though he was an average guy, he could literally rip gates out of the ground and slaughter thousands of people. It's a miracle. And probably during the time of the judges... He was probably Israel's greatest champion. Are you hearing me? During the days of the judges, which ended with Samuel, Samson was probably their greatest champion. He could take a jawbone of a donkey and whip a thousand people. Literally. The Spirit of God would come upon him. 
But what you've got to understand about Samson was he was a Nazarite from birth. He was consecrated unto God. And it was seen in his long hair. But the thing about Samson, and this is unfortunately speaks of a lot of people, even though he was set apart to this high calling, he was unfaithful. He was not supposed to touch a dead body, and he knew that. But he still slaughtered the lion and killed it, and then even went back and touched the dead body to get the honey out of it. And that wasn't enough. He also drank wine. And then finally, with Delilah, he allowed her to cut his hair, which he was not supposed to do as an Azurite. All three things he was not supposed to do, he did, and on the third one, the Spirit of God left him. And when his hair was cut, that was the final straw. God said, you already touched a dead body and defiled yourself. You've been drinking the fruit of the vine I told you not to as a Nazarite. And now you're allowing your hair to be cut. The Nazarite vow is broken and my spirit's lifting. And when the Spirit of God lifted, he didn't even know it. Some people get so desensitized by sin, they don't even realize when the Spirit of God lifts. And the Philistines came and he, he shook himself and was going to get up and fight him. And he was just as another man now. The Spirit of God did not come upon him and give him supernatural strength. So they subdued him. They gouged his eyes out. You got to understand, this was Israel's great champion. What happened to this mighty man of God that shook a nation? That now his eyes are gouged out, probably with a hot poker, stabbed him in the eyes, blinded him, and now he's down in a dungeon somewhere and he's pushing this mill and that's his life in prison. And the Philistines would periodically take him out and they would be feasting and they would mock and make fun of him and put him up there so they could laugh at him and ridicule him. And that was entertainment to him. But here's what happened. While Samson was in prison, his hair started growing. And Samson humbled himself before God. And he said, God, I'm asking you for another chance. And God heard Samson. And they brought him out there to ridicule him and make fun of him. Here they all are. They're there. They're feasting. And they're sitting there laughing at him, making fun of him. This great, you know, Israeli champion. Now we have him blinded. He's working in our dungeon. They're sitting there making fun of him. And Samson's hair has been grown. And he asked God for one more chance. And he reached out and there was these stone pillars. Even though he was blinded, he asked the person to put him by. And supernatural strength came on him and he pushed those stone pillars and they, and they broke. And the roof came down on all of them. It killed him too, but it killed... It says it killed more in his death than he did in his life. But it's a sad story because Samson had a very high calling, but he was unfaithful to it. How many people have a high calling before God to see great things, but they keep being unfaithful and they're disqualifying themselves? Let me tell you two things. I want, I want to make sure you hear me on this. God sees the heart. That means this. Some people, they don't have it all together. Spiritually speaking, they struggle. They're trying to learn. They don't understand things. They're, they're, they have a heart for God, but they're struggling. God sees their heart. 
But there's a second group of people that they're always seem to be pulled away in their heart. They're always pulled away to something else. I've seen people all the time. They'll, they'll come into church, but their heart isn't really real. And they, they're a distraction and a hindrance to other people. They themselves are not really pressing in. Every time they're up and down spiritually because their heart's not set right. Listen, God can take an imperfect person that's got a lot of issues, but if their heart is really sincere, He will help them overcome their weaknesses. It's a heart issue. The beginning of a Nazarite begins in the heart. So I don't want people to feel like, well, I've blown it in the past. Well, maybe you have, but that's where the blood of Jesus comes in. It's not about, you know, being perfect in your past. It's about repenting of your past and letting the Lord wash you, cleanse you, and change you. It says in Judges 5, 2, that when leaders led Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, the phrase when leaders led can be translated the long-haired ones who let their hair hang loose. So it seemed like that the Nazarites would set themselves apart as holy unto God and that they were the ones that would lead sometimes into battle. Amos 2.11 says God raised them up in dark times. The radiant ones consecrated and sanctified to bring deliverance like Samson. But it has to begin in the heart. And here's what we do. We, let, we ask God, we say, Lord, we're going to lay our lives on the altar. Come light the fire in us. Let the fire of heaven be lit in my heart and let me burn for you. See, once that's accomplished where God has lit somebody's heart on fire, they're on fire for God. They're passionate for the things of God. They're hungry for the things of God. They themselves may be very imperfect. Just because somebody's got a heart that's on fire and in love with Jesus doesn't mean they're going to be perfect. As a matter of fact, they may be very flawed and they may have a lot of issues. But God can take that person that's got a heart that burns for Him and He can begin to mold their life and draw them into Christ and change them. And it may not always be overnight, but God can do it and He will do it. And some of these that have the greatest flaws will end up being the greatest champions one day when God's through with them. The Bible says, He that began a good work in you will complete it. But let me bring this into now. How does this apply to you and I? Number one, if you want to have a heart that's consecrated unto God, and you want to be a modern day Nazarite, somebody that is consecrated, sanctified, set apart for a high calling, you want to really be used of God in a significant way. Number one, you've got to quit touching the dead bodies. And what that means is you've got to get out of your life what's killing you spiritually. Please hear me today. Please hear me. This is probably one of the more important sermons I've preached. You've got to get the things out of you that's spiritually killing you. What is it that you're listening to? What is it you're watching? Who is it you're hanging around? What are you doing? Is it killing you? Is it a relationship? What is it? You know, it's a spiritual principle 
that God will begin a work in us and he will continue it and he will complete it. But I'm going to tell you something. If people are unfaithful, God sometimes has to raise up another person to do what they're called to do. He's going to accomplish whatever he set forth to do. But I don't want to be somebody that he has to pass over and get somebody else to do what I was called to do. But he will do that if somebody doesn't surrender themselves to him fully. And they're going to hang on to things. The second thing is don't return to past sins that the Lord has delivered you from. How many people have been delivered of something? God set them free. And then in a moment of, of they had a bad day or whatever, and next thing you know, they're going back to it. That's touching dead bodies, friend. And it, it's spiritually killing people. The third thing is you've got to walk in forgiveness. That, that will kill quicker than anything. The second thing about wines, wine, grapes, and raisins in the time that the Jewish people live, you know, the grape juice would ferment. This was, you know, the grapes, the raisins, all that, the wine. That was something that was permissible to them. But here's the thing. God takes those that are Nazarites, and even though it may be somebody else can get away with it, you can't. Because you're going deeper. Are you hearing me? There's some things that you may see Christians out there that, that seems like they get away with it. But God won't let you because He wants the fire to burn brighter in you. He wants the anointing to be stronger. He wants His glory to be more intense. And He wants to use you for a greater purpose. How do you know that from birth that God in the spirit realm wasn't speaking over you in a spiritual sense this is my Nazarite, and no razor will touch their head one day. How do you know? And also the cutting of the hair, how does that apply to us today? Because we've got to be outwardly accountable. You know, the thing about the Nazarite was this. The Nazarite that had the long hair growing out, people knew when they saw them that they were a Nazarite. So they knew. That if they saw them over there picking grapes off a of vine and eating it, they're like, hey, wait a second, buddy. You're, you're supposed to be a Nazarite. What are you doing? The growing out of the hair had to do with an outward accountability of holy living. So God wants us to get the dead bodies out. And God may put on your heart that even though others get away with something, you're not going to get away with it. And let me just reiterate that. Sometimes people don't understand what God's doing in those that are Nazarites spiritually. He, people don't understand them because God has taken them deeper. I remember Steve Hill one time said in the Brownsville Revival, he said, you know, what's the definition of a radical? He said, some of you guys see somebody up here dancing around like a crazy person. You see somebody over there doing this and you think, oh, they're radical. He said, you know what the definition of a radical is? Somebody that's closer to Jesus than you. But here's, here's the thing. That may be true, but don't let it go to your head that God has drawn you deeper in Him because that is how the devil will, that is the weapon that the devil will draw out against you. <coughs> If you're a Nazarite, that is number one sword that the devil will draw is spiritual pride. Number one. 
And he'll try to get you to get a big head about it. Because when you do, the Holy Spirit will be grieved and will pull up. And you will be forced then to go through a process of the Lord humbling you. Which is never fun. The Nazarite type of Christians are the ones that will see the greatest miracles, the greatest anointings, and the greatest glory. But here's something I want you to hear. Please hear me. Under Jewish law, if somebody was to touch a dead body, even though they were not a Nazarite, they were considered ceremonially unclean for a period of time, for seven days. And there were other things. If you touched a leper, whatever, you would become ceremonially defiled and unclean that you were not allowed to go and worship in the temple for seven days. You hear me? But here's the interesting principle. Jesus comes on the scene, the ultimate Nazarite, who never broke one law under God, in God's commandments. You realize that? Jesus never broke one law. A holy man of God. He was a rabbi. People looked to him. But whenever somebody would come to him that was unclean, like a leper, or the woman with the issue of blood, she would have been considered ceremonially unclean. Isn't it interesting that whenever they touched him, that instead of them defiling him for seven days of him being ceremonially un- unclean, they became clean. Amen. Now I want you to get this principle because I want faith to arise in you. There is a principle about defilement. Okay, I've taught on that. But also let me add that under the New Testament we have so much authority and power in Christ that we are supposed to be the ones that are shifting the atmosphere. We're supposed to be the ones that are setting the spiritual thermometer. We're supposed to be the ones that are bringing cleansing to others. And don't worry about, oh, so-and-so is going to defile me or whatever. You need to be thinking about, I'm going to release cleansing into their life. But what you've got to understand is purity precedes power. Holiness. Without holiness, no man will see the Lord. But I want to start moving to a close. I want to talk about the bond slave under Old Testament law. But listen, you remember the Apostle Paul? Whenever he took a vow and shaved his head, what, what vow do you think that that was? He was taking a Nazarite vow. And then he shaved his head and took the hair. Do you see what I'm saying? And so this is something that carries over. And interestingly enough, there's also a principle of the bond slave in the Old Testament. And Paul said this. He said in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. How many knows you've got to serve one master? People want to have one foot in the world and one foot with God. It won't work. I mean, if somebody dies like that, they're still going to hell because they're not really real. It doesn't work that way. And it's miserable. You know what's miserable? is somebody that is trying to be a Christian and worldly at the same time. They're not really happy. They're miserable on the inside. They're unfulfilled. The only true joy you find is in Christ, and and it's really surrendering to Him. But let me read this to you about the bondservant. It says, At the end of every seven years you will grant remission of debts. 
And so what they had to do, they had to release every seven years, they had to release a slave, they had to release, you know, whatever it is that they had as far as the debt. And also, every seventh year, they were supposed to let the land rest. So they were supposed to reap, this is the tithing principle, they were supposed to reap for six years. And because they were obeying God, God blessed their six years of reaping so much that they didn't even have to plant on the seventh year. That's the principle of tithing. When people will do it God's way, and they'll really be faithful in their tithe, God will so bless them, He'll take the 90% and make it go farther than the 100% would in the first place. Well, let me skip down to the bond slave. In, in verse 15 it says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this, this day, and it shall come about if he says to you, I will not go. Listen, they, had, they were supposed to release their slave on the seventh year. But look, the Lord says this, What if the slave that you have says to you, I will not go from you, because... He loves his master. He loves the household. He fares well there. And he doesn't want to leave. See, God put this in Jewish law because he knew that there was going to be some slaves that so loved their master and loved that family, loved that household, that when the seven years were up, they didn't want to leave. And so the Lord said in verse 17, then you'll take an all, which was a sharp instrument, and you're going to pierce through his ear into the door that was marking him and he will be your servant forever and also you will do likewise to the maid servant. Isn't it interesting? See, this is what I'm trying to get across to you. God does not want outward Nazarites. He wants inward Nazarites. He wants people that, that want to be bond servants to him because they love him. The Pharisees were whitewashed tombs. They put on a good show. They knew how to act. They'd walk around. See, back then they had these things called phylacteries, you know. And it, they were, anyway, in the Jewish law, they would have it on their right hand and their forehead. I'm trying to explain it to you. And they would make them really big so that they could walk around and strut. You know, look how big my phylacteries are, you know. And they would have their prayer shawl. They did. They would have their prayer shawl and they would have really long tassels on the ends to show how spiritual they were. And Jesus rebuked them and said, You strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. You're a whitewashed tomb on the outside. You look good, but on the inside, you're just dead bones. God is not looking for people to be outward Nazarites. He's looking for the heart. And so God wants us like the Apostle Paul to say, I'm no longer living to please men. I'm living to please God. I can't please men and be a bondservant of Christ. And let me tell you, a true bondservant... See, you've got to go back to understand what Paul was saying. He was saying, I'm a bondservant. I don't want to be with another master. I want to be with Jesus. I want to be marked by Him. I want to be His. I'm with Him because I want to be. In verse 19 it says, You will consecrate to the Lord your God all the firstborn males that are born of your herd, the flock. You will not work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. God looked at everything that was firstborn as holy unto Him. 
Well, let me move on. Some of this will make sense as I go. Those wanting to be totally sold out to the Lord in every way because they love the Lord with all their heart. That's what God's looking for. And some of you that are hearing me, you're saying, well, I feel like I've fallen so short in the past. Big deal. Then don't fall short now. Some of you say, well, I don't feel like I'm perfect. God isn't looking for you to be absolutely perfect per se. He wants your heart first. Once He has your heart, then He will start working on you and changing you. The problem is, a lot of people don't want to give up their heart to the Lord. They've still got idols in their heart. There's things they're holding on to. But God's bringing us to a day, and I say this prophetically over this ministry, God's bringing us to a day, mark it down, where people are really going to be living every day, making the most of every day. God's beginning something in our ministry where people are going to wake up each day thinking themselves, today is a day God's given me to be here on this earth and there's an assignment somewhere today and I'm going to do something for the Lord today and they're going to live that way. God's going to do something in in this group, I'm telling you. But God has called us to be salt and light. Please get this principle. Jesus said, if if salt loses its saltiness, it's worthless. What good is salt if it doesn't taste salty? But see, what does salt do? It changes the flavor of something. You get a piece of meat, it's bland. You put salt on it, changes the taste. Listen, Christians are supposed to be salt in the earth. Meaning that God looks at the earth and because we are here, the earth is salted to Him. It's different. You know how how we're true salt? Because of prayer. Because we're praying and fasting and we're interceding for our nation. And because of us, the nation is salted and God withholds judgment. Second thing we're supposed to be is light. Light is you share the gospel, the light of Christ. So there's the two things that we're supposed to be as Christians, salt and light. Prayer warriors and witnesses. That is what it boils down to. That's what I pray for you guys all the time. That's what I want to be. The two things that we need to be foundational is prayer warriors and witnesses. That's foundation. That's Christianity 101. When you leave out tonight, remember that above everything else that Pastor Scott said. Number one, I need to be a prayer warrior. Number two, I need to be a light, a witness. When you stand before the Lord on Judgment Day, those will be the two things that will be the most significant because your prayers change so many lives. And number two, the only thing you're going to take to heaven is other souls. Job said, I came in naked and I'm leaving naked. But I'm going to tell you this, you're going to take souls with you. The redemption of the firstborn, I'm moving down to a close. You can read about it yourself. You know, just study some of this out. I put a lot of notes here. But here's, here's what I really want to get to is this. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. That's the redemption of the firstborn. We are bought. We are not our own. But see, God doesn't want us to be 
these slaves that are constantly rebelling against us. He wants us to be bond slaves that want to be with Him. The difference, you know, Jesus said that we are sheep. You know, you lead sheep. He didn't say that we were goats. You know what goats do? You have to get behind them and try to kick them to get them to go anywhere. But see, sheep, you can lead sheep, but goats have that stubborn streak, and if you turn your back on them... <laughs> and they'll eat anything. Listen, there's, there's a reason why the world is described as goats, okay? They'll eat anything. Seriously, they'll eat, I mean, like a Coca-Cola can. Barbed wire. I don't understand it. But listen, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you real fast a few things, and then I want to pray with people. But don't raise your hand. I want you to think about this for a moment. I want you to really think about this. In fact, I want you to close your eyes. If you guys are listening to this, some of you are listening to this driving down the road, don't close your eyes. But I want you to... Okay. <laughs> Just pray with me. Okay. Everybody else, close your eyes. I want you to get this. I want you to think for a moment, do you feel like God has something significant for you? Really, think about it. When you, when you were born, could it be that God saw you and He knew your whole life and, and something the Lord spoke over your life in the way of they're going to be my Nazarite. They're going to be used one day significantly for me. They're going to see a harvest of souls. I'm going to use them. Here's what God is looking for. As you got your eyes closed, He's looking for the heart to burn for Him. That He can put a fire in you and a passion and a hunger for the things of God. But you've got to ask Him for it. You've got to want it. Alright, everybody look this way. I'm only going to do the first seven temples of the Lord. But see, the first temple was the tent of meeting and Moses set it up and it was... It was Man going toward God, looking for God, pursuing God. Moses set up this tent. He was going to commune with God. The next was the tabernacle, and that was God coming to man. Follow me. So first, we began to seek the Lord. Then the Lord begins to move in our lives. The next one was David's tabernacle, which had to do with praise and worship. So we begin to seek God. God begins to light the flame. See, you know what God's wanting from you guys on the outset of this sermon? He's wanting you to begin to ask Him about hunger and passion for the things of God. To be a true Nazarite in the heart. To be hungry for the things of God, passionate for the things of God. But see, as you begin to go after God and seek Him for that, then He will respond with fire. Like the tabernacle. This results in praise and worship in your life and intimacy with God. Then, Solomon's temple, prosperity. You begin to move in great prosperity in life, spiritually speaking and even naturally speaking. But this will bring you to Ezra's second temple, which has to do with trials. That's God's pattern. Unless a kernel of wheat fall to the ground and die, okay, it just remains a single seed. God will put us through the trials 
That's part of the process. Then, if we're faithful and we come through the trials, Herod's temple has to do with reaching the lost, reaching the heathen. Herod's temple was made by heathen. So it is literally that God begins to use you in a powerful way to see a harvest. And then finally, now, the Christian, where God empowers you in such a way that you are seeing the very things that Jesus saw in his ministry. So let me show you this again. You begin to seek God. God responds with fire. It produces worship and intimacy with God in your life, your prayer life. God begins to move you into prosperity, spiritually speaking. Then you have to go through trials. If you're faithful through the trials, then you'll begin to reach the lost and God will begin to use you And if you continue to be faithful, you could be somebody that God uses to see the very things that Jesus saw through his ministry with blind eyes open, deaf ears opening, the dead raised, great revival, great signs and wonders. There were three anointings in the Old Testament. The leper anointing had to do with cleansing. How many knows God has got to clean us up? He's got to clean us up. The second, after God does this cleaning, here's what happens. The second anointing was the priestly anointing where they would go in and minister to the Lord. And then the third anointing was the kingly anointing and that's where you come out and you minister for the Lord. God's got to purify us, but we've got to learn that the way that you come out and you're able to be used powerfully by God is first, you've learned to minister to Him in private. And then... He will anoint you and you can go out and minister for him. Too many people, you know, I've heard it said that across the board, just clergy, church leaders across the board that pray like, you know, five, ten minutes or something a day. I mean, just almost nothing. That's what I'm talking about. If you're really going to have an anointing, you've got to learn to minister to the Lord. You've got to learn to have a powerful prayer life. And as you spend time with him, you know what marked the early church whenever Peter and John were standing before the Sanhedrin and they, and they had reached down. Remember Peter had pulled that crippled guy up and he was healed and he was running around jumping and, and people came up to him and, and Peter said, look, don't look at me like I did this. Jesus did this and there was a harvest. Listen, whenever the, the Sanhedrin brought them in and they were questioning them and they said, we forbid you from speaking anymore in the name of Jesus. And they looked at the Sanhedrin and said, You judge for yourself if it is right for us to obey God or man. We can't help but speak about what we've seen and we've heard. And listen to what the Sanhedrin said. They said they marveled at their boldness and they said, These men have been with Jesus. That's what they said. They said, These men have been with Jesus. They've been with Him. You could tell they had been with Him. I hope that's sinking in. Because the only, what people are going to see in you is they're going to see, have you been with Jesus? Because if you really have been with Him, it's going to show. And here's what I want to close with. When the children of Israel came into Canaan, this is the powerful truth about inner healing and deliverance ministry, okay? But when the children of Israel came into Canaan, God told them, I'm giving you this whole land. But you're going to have to take it inch by inch. 
And they went in and they took Jericho right off the bat and God would not let him. Remember, he wouldn't let him take any of the silver, gold or any of the plunder. Why? Because it was the tithe first. They were tithing to the Lord. Then they went in and they conquered these other areas. But God told them, you're going to take this land inch by inch. You're going to, and the reason why, the Lord said, you're going to drive them out. But he said, if, you, if I give you the whole land, God said, if I, you know, for example, if I speak over this land, every, all these people drop dead and you just take the land. He said, if I give you the whole land right now, you can't handle it. And the wild beast would come in and they would overtake you. I have to give it to you inch by inch so that you can occupy it. Here is what I'm trying to tell you. Please get this. As a Christian, would you become a born-again Christian? God, you are beginning to take the land in your life. It's like God gives it to you inch by inch. This is important that you understand this as a Nazarite. God first wants your heart. But then God will begin to teach you how to overcome your past sins. How to live in victory over the temptations of the world. How to die to the flesh. He'll deal with you about things like generational curses to be broken. Whatever it is that's still in your life, you'll take it inch by inch. And if you'll be faithful and keep going with God, the whole enemy will be completely driven out and you will really possess the promise that God has for you. That's what Jesus paid for you to have on the cross. Complete freedom. But the problem is a lot of people give up along that journey. They begin to live with some things. They begin to tolerate some things. There's some things they don't want to give up. How many times I've seen Christians that they'll say, Okay, Jesus, I'll give up this, 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 and this. I'll do this and this for you. And then they'll draw a line in the sand and say, But I'm not giving up that. And that is the very thing that takes them down. So God wants us to not be passive. The word Canaan actually means subdued or lowly. As many of you probably already know. The Canaanites were people that were lazy. They were unwilling to exert the energy to gain wealth. And interesting, I heard a preacher talking about this in Isaiah 30 verse 7. It says, Egypt being like a reluctant dragon. See, Canaan, they did not want to rise up and do anything. You know, the thing about Christianity is God is expecting us to get up and do it. And to go after it. What He's promised us to have, He wants us to possess it. The promised land, the children of Israel had to go in and possess that land. God has promised you complete deliverance, complete healing, that your life will be holy unto Him, that you can die to sin and live righteous. He's promised you all these things, but you've got to rise up and take it. Lay hold of it and keep pressing in inch by inch. It may take you years to get full victory in certain areas, but you press in and determine that I am not giving up until I have everything that Jesus paid for me to have. There's root issues. And I'm going to let you pray about this on your own. But there's root issues in people's lives. Sometimes of unforgiveness. Pride. Fear. Rebellion. Lust. Generational iniquity and curses. And idols. A lot of people have a lot of idols in their heart. Things that are they won't give up. Things that are too important to them or whatever. And it hinders what God's wanting to do in their life. But out of these, I've preached along these lines with the Seductions of Satan series. So if somebody's hearing this, 
and they're wanting to go deeper about being free in these areas, go back and listen to that series. But let me just give you one thing, and this is what I want to close with. The Bible talks about continuing in the sins of your fathers. They continued in. See, there are certain things that... Well, let me start with the positive. God allows generational blessings... And if you can't find a generational blessing in your family somewhere, God will put a spiritual mom or dad in your life and it will go from them to you. But God's all about this generational blessing business. He, he wants those blessings to come on you and they travel down family lines. But just like there's generational blessings, a generational anointing, answer prayers, positive things that travel down family lines. Like you remember Paul said about Timothy. He said, your grandmother, the faith, that was in your grandma, was in your mama, and now it's in you. I see it in you. Paul said that to Timothy. That can travel down family lines, that, that faith. But there can also be negative traits, spiritual things, that travel down family lines that are not of God. And what you'll see many times is somebody will start coming of age, and they'll begin to do things that was a generational bondage in their family. Like let's just say for example that uh, the family was really into sexual sins, adultery or whatever. And that would seem to be a curse on the family. And then they, the, as the person gets older, they begin to continue in the sins of their father. And because they continue in the sins of their ancestors, it really comes down on them and sets up a bondage and a generational curse. Are you hearing me? It could be in the area of substance abuse. It could be in the area of strife. How I many know some families have strife? And let me tell you something. Strife is a big door for the devil. A big door. People that are plagued with strife in their home, they'll fight and they bicker. There's a presence there of fighting. And almost all the time, it's difficult to get a good night's rest in that house. That it seems like their food doesn't even digest good. They can't even enjoy company with their family. And there's sometimes health problems. And all of it seems to go back to the atmosphere of strife that's in that home. And that travels down family lines. But God is wanting us to, to break free from these cycles. So if you see things that are in your generations, it's in your family. Like maybe, for example, a Jezebel Ahab tendency... For men to be passive and women to be controlling. If you see that in the family, break free from it. It's a spiritual thing. It's a curse. And what you do is you ask the Lord, forgive me, Lord, for continuing in the sins of my ancestors. Because as I continued in them, it opened the door for that bondage to come on my life. See, people don't understand that sometimes somebody will, will pick something up. And when they do, it's a sin of their ancestors. It seems like there's a lot more to it than just that sin. It really seems to grip them. Are you hearing me? Somebody else could pick it up and set it down, but they pick it up and it seems to wrap around them. Well, this is the final point I want to make. Prayer and fasting. Listen, if you want to be a modern-day Nazarite, a modern-day bond slave for Christ, somebody that is consecrated, somebody that's going to go deeper, somebody that's going to go after God with all your heart and see everything that He has for you, somebody 
that's so faithful and going after God so much that even others that God wanted to use and couldn't, He could put that on you. That type of person that's going to go all the way begin to seek the Lord in prayer and fasting about it. Lord, set my heart ablaze. Let me burn for you. Help me to hate the things you hate. Things that I used to love that now I put a hatred in me for those evil things. I don't want them anymore. Burn out of me what needs to go. Change me. And let the Lord do a deep work in you. If you want to be a modern day Nazarite, I feel like this sermon is connected to the anointing that God's releasing tonight. I want to pray for everybody that wants prayer, okay? But tonight, if you want to be a modern day Nazarite, if you want to be somebody that your heart burns for the Lord, that you're, you're set apart for something significant, watch out for that spirit of pride, though. Watch out. But if that's you and you really want that, I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now. But begin to seek the Lord in prayer and fasting about it on your own. Outside of church, outside of anything else anybody else is doing, something between you and God, that you begin to seek the Lord in prayer and fasting about. And seek the Lord in prayer and fasting about Him burning out any hindrances, things that are holding you back. But if you want to be a modern day Nazareth, if you really want something different in your life, I want you just to pray this out loud with me. Say, Jesus, I want to be different. I want to be set apart. But I know I can't do it. You have to do this in me. Put a fire in me. Let me burn for you. Put a hunger in me. For the things of God. Put a passion in me. For you. Help me. To love what you love. And hate what you hate. To be radically devoted to you. Faithful. Burn out of me. What needs to go. Transform my life. Tonight. I lay myself down. On the altar. A living sacrifice. Let your fire. Consume me. Baptize me. And burn out of my life. What needs to go. All the days of my life. Let me burn for you. In Jesus' name.